back to the Historia Dramatica podcast and to our series on the life of Baron Roman von Ungern Sternberg. In the last episode, we discussed Ungern's conduct in the First World War and in the Russian revolutions and civil war that followed. Although he'd previously been expelled from two separate army regiments for violent confrontations with fellow officers, Ungern re-enlisted in the army as soon as he heard that the war had broken out. Ungern served with distinction. He participated in several battles along the Eastern Front. He was wounded no less than five times, and was awarded the Order of St. George for his trouble. In 1916, Ungern was arrested once again for violently attacking a hotel clerk in a drunken rage. While he was serving his two-month sentence, the February Revolution toppled the Tsarist regime. Upon his release, Ungern swore temporary fealty to the provisional government, so that he could continue to prosecute the war against Russia's external enemies. But he despised liberalism and socialism, and he made it his personal mission to restore the Tsar to power at his first opportunity. Ungern was transferred to the Assyrian Front, where he met Captain Gregory Semyonov, the man under whom he was to serve for the next three years. When Semyonov was transferred to Siberia, Ungern followed him there. They were there when the Bolsheviks overthrew the provisional government. Together, this pair and the forces under their command put down nascent leftist uprisings in Siberia and were able to consolidate their power in the region. Against the backdrop of civil war, Semyonov ruled the region as his own personal fiefdom, living large by exploiting the native population. Semyonov and Ungern were only loosely aligned with the anti-Bolshevik white movement led by Admiral Alexander Kolchak. But when Kolchak's fortunes took a turn for the worse, so too did theirs. The Bolsheviks only kept advancing into Siberia, and, by mid-1920, they looked practically unstoppable. Kolchak was arrested and executed in February of that year. Semyonov's capital city, Chita, fell in April. Ungern, realizing how desperate the situation was, was beginning to prepare for a tactical retreat into the country of Mongolia. What followed was the so-called Mongolian Campaign, but sources differ as to Ungern's original intent for this action. Official Soviet documents maintain that Ungern entered Mongolia with the explicit intention of taking over the country. The Soviet version of events is backed up by Semyonov, of all people, who, in his memoirs, claimed that he ordered Ungern to do the very thing. Ungern's own testimony, however, conflicts with these accounts. He claims that, initially at least, he only intended to pass through Mongolian territory in an effort to outflank the Red Army and to halt their advance on Chita, and that he only made the decision to travel deeper into the country after he learned that the city had been captured. Ungern's own actions, however, suggest that he planned to remain in Mongolia for quite some time. In August 1920, he abruptly cut off all ties to his life in Doria. He quietly and unceremoniously divorced his wife, and he publicly renounced his allegiance to Semyonov. Once he actually crossed the border into Mongolia, however, Ungern's intentions only become more confused. After two months of preparation, Ungern reorganized the forces under his command into a new unit, which he dubbed the Asiatic Cavalry Division. The unit was aptly named. It was organized around three major ethnic components, Cossacks, Mongols, and Tatars. His force was small, numbering only originally around 1,500 men. But, be that as it may, under the command of a competent leader, it had the potential to be a very effective fighting force. The main advantage it had over most enemy armies it would face was speed. Given that most of their opponents were likely to be on foot, Ungern's horsemen could utilize the same sort of hit-and-run tactics that had won him such fame during the Great War. 
as they won victories in Mongolia, Ungern expected to bolster his ranks with local recruits. The Asiatic Cavalry Division crossed the border into Mongolia in early October of 1920. Upon entering the country, Ungern is said to have made two promises. One, the expulsion of the Chinese, and two, the restoration of the Bogd Khan. Now, at this point, I suppose it would be proper for me to make a proper explanation of what exactly had been going on in Mongolia since our narrative last left the country. I will start with a proper explanation of who the Bogd Khan actually was. As I've mentioned before, the Bogd Khan was the leader of independent Mongolia, but he wasn't just a political leader, he was a spiritual leader as well. The Bogd Khan was born in Tibet in 1869 to an accountant in the employ of the Dalai Lama. As a child, he was determined to be the reincarnation of the Jeb Sundamba Kutuku, or the Venerable Excellent Incarnate Lama. This title made him not only the third most powerful figure in Vajrayana Buddhism, but also the spiritual leader of all Mongolian Buddhists. The Bode Khan was a savvy political operator, and he found himself the leader of Mongolia when the country declared independence. The main takeaway here is that the Bogd Khan wielded considerable secular and religious power. He was respected by the nobility and beloved by the commoners. Most importantly, however, the Bogd Khan held great symbolic importance as the figurehead of the newly independent Mongolian state. When last our narrative left the country, the fledgling Mongolian state was taking advantage of Chinese internal discord and Russian disinterest in the region to assert their independence. Military attempts by the Chinese to regain control of the region had been sporadic and poorly executed. Mongolia did not face any serious military threat in the years between 1911 and 1918. In fact, Mongolian and Chinese diplomats had been in negotiations, which would have reintegrated Mongolia into China, albeit with a greater degree of autonomy, a deal that seemed to have been acceptable to the leadership of both nations. Meanwhile, in China, the Xinhai Revolution of 1911, which brought down the Qing monarchy, continued to result in political upheaval. I will not get too bogged down in details at this juncture, I have a future episode that will cover all of this in more detail, but the short of it is, is that the death of strongman Yuan Shikai led to a power struggle between the various regional warlords throughout the country. One of these warlords, named Xu Shusheng, sought to increase his power and influence by taking over Mongolia. After all, it was still rightful Chinese territory. The Mongol army was small and Russia was too preoccupied with civil war to intervene, and it was so that Xu's army invaded the country in October 1919, a full year in advance of Ungern's arrival. Xu's army came under the pretext of a diplomatic mission, and they occupied the Mongolian capital of Urga without resistance. Xu tried to convince the Mongolian government to willingly surrender their independence. When this failed, he engaged in some classic gunboat diplomacy, posting armed soldiers outside government offices and threatening to arrest the lot of them if they did not comply. The Mongolian leadership caved. Mongolia was once again a part of China, but instead of gaining the autonomy that they had been promised in the negotiations, the Mongolian people were now subjected to a repressive, extractive, and above all, humiliating occupation under the army of Xu Shuzhang. All sections of Mongolian society, the nobility, the clergy, and the peasantry alike, were massively dissatisfied with Xu's regime, but they had no recourse. The army had been disbanded. The Jia Lama had gone into hiding. It was under these circumstances that Roman von Ungern Sternberg entered the country in 1920. 
Ungern's entry to Mongolia could not have come at a more opportune time. If he could defeat Zhu's army, the Asiatic Cavalry Division would be, by default, the largest military force in the country. The Mongolian government would be completely beholden to him. Of course, he wasn't so forthright with his intentions when he took up secret correspondence with the Bogd Khan. In the letter he sent to the Bogd Khan, Ungern informed him of his intentions to, quote, Enter Orga according to the Mongolian custom of friendship, accompanied by soldiers to provide assistance to the Bogd Khan to protect Mongolia and to set it free from ruthless Chinese oppression. End quote. Suspicious as the Bogd Khan may have been of Ungern's true intentions, he was in no position to refuse this assistance. He wrote back to Ungern, imploring him to come to Urga post haste. The Asiatic Cavalry Division arrived on the outskirts of the Mongolian capital on October 26th. Ungern's initial attempt to take the city failed, as well as a second one five days later. There were simply too many factors working to his disadvantage. His men were exhausted, hungry, undersupplied, and in unfamiliar territory. What's more, the defenders of the city were too well fortified for Ungern's usual cavalry tactics to be effective. These factors may have been mitigated with more planning, but Ungern insisted on attacking on the same day that he arrived at the city, as he'd been convinced by a fortune teller that it was an auspicious date. Ungern was beaten for now, but he was not one to give up. He led his forces on a retreat to a location 60 miles east of the city, where they could set up camp for the winter. Despite his failure to take Urga, Ungern's arrival in Mongolia sent ripples in every direction. The Red Army High Command had been aware of the situation from the moment the Asiatic Cavalry Division had crossed the border, but for the time being, they were unwilling to invade Mongolia to chase after him. The Chinese garrison in Urga responded by further fortifying the city, building walls and hauling in several artillery pieces from abroad. But by far, the group of people most excited by Ungern's exploits were the Mongols themselves. Since the Mongol army was disbanded by the Chinese occupational forces, Ungern and his men had become the Mongols' last hope. Ungern's reputation got far ahead of him. Tales of this mysterious warlord from the north riding atop a white horse and promising national salvation caused some Mongolians to believe that he was the reincarnation of the god of war. The nature of Mongolian Buddhism was such that viewing political or military figures as divine reincarnations was actually rather common. The Bogd Khan, for example, drew his legitimacy from his claim to be the living Buddha. While claims of Ungern's divinity were never recognized by the Bogd Khan or any Buddhist clergy, and he himself never addressed any of these claims directly, these rumors were quite effective in driving recruitment. Many Mongols, nobility, and commoners alike flocked to Ungern's encampment on the banks of the Karolin River. The support of the nobility was especially helpful to Ungern as it granted legitimacy to his cause. During this time, many prominent war heroes of the 1911 revolution joined Ungern's cause, prompting many other Mongols to follow suit. Also reinforcing his ranks were white army deserters and a contingent of Tibetan warrior monks. In three months, Ungern's ranks swelled from 1,500 to nearly 6,000 men. But all was not well in the God of War's camp. The winter of 1920-1921 was exceptionally harsh, even by Mongolian standards. Temperatures hovered around negative 20 degrees Celsius, or negative 4 degrees Fahrenheit. The Asiatic Cavalry Division struggled to provision itself. Malnutrition and disease became serious problems. Early in February of 1921, Ungern moved his camp back to the outskirts of Urga. This time, he had come to attack. His force was several times larger than it had been back in October, 
But, as Ungern was certainly aware, his men were nearing a breaking point. His harsh disciplinary measures had been effective at stopping desertion for now, but such things could not stave off death from starvation and exposure. It was for this reason that Urga, and the supplies within it, had to be captured immediately. To ensure the success of the attack, Ungern went to great lengths to survey the city, even going so far as to personally embark on scouting missions himself. At night, he, borrowing an old tactic of Genghis Khan, had his men light multiple fires in the hills surrounding the city, to give off the impression that his force was much larger than it was in actuality. A preliminary plan of attack was devised. The bulk of Ungern's force was to quietly approach the Chinese forces from the east and launch a surprise attack. A smaller group would guard the road outside of town, preventing reinforcements from entering the city, and four divisions of soldiers would lie in reserve should they be needed. That night, the attack began sooner than intended when the defenders discovered Ungern's men lying in wait for their artillery to get into position. When the defenders opened fire, the attackers had no choice but to retaliate. Historian James Palmer describes the ensuing scene thusly, quote, Here the attacking soldiers found themselves under constant attack from Chinese trenches. The noise was terrible. The constant racket of machine gun fire interspersed with Chinese and Mongolian war cries. The shouts of wounded men in a dozen different languages. Both sides possessed rockets, still inaccurate, and on the whole useless weapons, which were little more than glorified fireworks. Occasionally one would explode high in the sky, providing a pyrotechnic element. The terrified animals of the Bogd Khan Zoo added their yelps and howls to the cacophony. His elephant was so frightened it broke free from its cage and charged trumpeting through the lines of battle." End quote. By the time the action had died down, the Asiatic Cavalry Division had broken through the easternmost line of the Chinese defenses. With the attack underway, Ungern launched the second part of his plan, the rescue of the Bogd Khan. The palace complex, where he was being held under house arrest, was deep within Chinese-held territory. It was well guarded, albeit with one glaring oversight. Behind the complex was the Bogd Khan Ul, a forested nature preserve which many Mongols considered sacred. The Chinese soldiers, both out of a desire to not further antagonize the Mongolian people and out of their own superstition, avoided the forest. The morning following the initial action, Ungern sent a small strike force through the forest to rescue the Bogd Khan. Despite attacking in broad daylight, the attackers took the guards completely by surprise, quickly overwhelming them. According to eyewitness accounts, the entire operation lasted no longer than 30 minutes. The rescued Bogd Khan was then escorted to the safety of a nearby monastery. The rest of that day's combat saw little progress made by either side. However, when the news broke in the Chinese camp of the Bogd Khan's rescue, the officers came to the conclusion that the battle was lost. They requisitioned any motor vehicles they could find, and fled north to the town of Kiatka, hoping to link up with any remaining Chinese forces to retake the town at a later date. The final assault on the city came that night. The remaining Chinese soldiers, abandoned by their superiors, were ever on edge. One of them opened fire on what they assumed to be an enemy soldier crossing the lines. He was mistaken, but this prompted the attackers to spontaneously charge the enemy lines, while a cavalry force attacked from the opposite side. Adding to the chaotic scene, a fire broke out and quickly made its way throughout the city. The defenders abandoned their trenches, and the fighting quickly moved into the streets. Those soldiers who did not try to flee made a last stand in the Russian quarter, separated from the rest of the city by a wall. It made no difference. The baron's men breached the gate in short order, and, once within the walls, a fierce melee ensued. Both the attackers and defenders hacked and bludgeoned each other with whatever they could, 
bayonets, swords, meat cleavers, even rocks. With the last of the defenders vanquished, the sun rose the next morning on a liberated Urga. Before the battle, Ungern promised his men three days to rape, pillage, and murder as they pleased. He also gave specific instructions to eliminate the Jewish and communists within the city. For Ungern, and many others like him, these categories were one and the same. His men accomplished this task with startling efficiency. Reports claim that over 300 Jews were killed in the subsequent pogrom, nearly the entire Jewish community of Urga. At the same time, the Mongols under Ungern's command targeted the city's much larger Chinese community. Some had escaped the city, following their officers north to safety, but around 3,000 had been left behind. Of these, only 800 survived the onslaught of the Mongol soldiers. Ungern was very careful not to subject the Mongol residents of the city to any such atrocities. Any man caught committing a crime against a Mongol civilian was summarily executed. With the battle for Urga won, Ungern now put his efforts towards two goals, solidifying his control over the country and building up his army. To accomplish either of these, he first had to restore order within the city. After the three allotted days of rape and pillage had passed, he began to curtail the violence, severely punishing any of his men who committed a crime against any of Urga's citizenry. Exempted from this were, of course, the Jews. Ungern saw all Jewish people as the eternal enemies of order, and he would not feel secure in his new position until every last one of them had been exterminated. Even after the looting and killing had died down, what few Jewish people remained in the city continued to be targeted by Ungern's men. This got to the point where it began to alienate Ungern's Mongol allies, who had no quarrels with the Jews and did not understand this blood feud. Some Mongols attempted to shelter Jews from the onslaught, but those caught trying to aid Jews were themselves targeted for harassment and killing. Togtok, one of the Mongol noblemen who had joined the Asiatic Cavalry Division that winter, narrowly avoided being executed for such an action. Still, Ungern's relations with the Bogd Khan remained very strong. The Khan owed the Baron his legitimacy among the Mongols, and to the Baron, the Khan owed his freedom. On February 22nd, 1921, the Lunar New Year, the Bogd Khan triumphantly processed into his newly liberated capital. This being after, of course, Ungern's men had removed all of the dead bodies from the streets. The Bogd Khan was officially restored as the ruler of Mongolia in an elaborate ceremony, during which he bestowed upon Ungern the title of Darkhan Khoschoi Chinwang, or hereditary great duke in the dignity of the Khan. He also presented Ungern with a splendid golden deal, a Central Asian garment akin to an overcoat, that Ungern would later be photographed wearing at his infamous trial. During the ceremony, the Bode Khan reportedly told Ungern, quote, You have taken Urga. Your good deed shall shine across the world like the rays of the sun. End quote. Despite all the elaborate to-do of his restoration, the Bogd Khan soon became relegated to the status of figurehead once more, as Ungern took on nearly all of the duties of state. He appointed friendly Mongol noblemen to head the ministries of foreign affairs, defense, finance, justice, and the armed forces. Each minister was given an advisor, all of whom were officers who reported directly to Ungern. Sometime later, the Bogd Khan officially appointed Ungern as commander of the entire Mongolian army. This gave Ungern the authority he needed to begin building up his army in earnest. He requisitioned stores of war materiel held in the town's warehouses, and he began to conscript all able-bodied male citizens into his ranks. The first, most pressing task for the Asiatic Cavalry Division now was the complete and total expulsion of the Chinese forces from the country. In the weeks following the capture of Urga, those who had not been fortunate enough to hitch a ride in the officers' cars 
were simply run down by Ungern's horsemen as they plodded through the Mongolian tundra. Further to the north was a force of between four and 6,000 reinforcements, who were on their way to retake Urga. Ungern dispatched a cavalry division under his second-in-command, Boris Razukin, to deal with them. They encountered them some 20 miles north of the city. They quickly surrounded them and killed over half their force. The survivors were escorted back to Urga, where most were pressed into military service. And with that, the last of the Chinese forces in Mongolia were defeated. Subsequent incursions from the south and west were repulsed without great effort. Mongolia was secure. With the two promises Ungern made upon entering Mongolia, the expulsion of the Chinese and the restoration of the Bogdkan fulfilled, what was next for the god of war? Had the time come to return to Russia with the full might of the Mongolian state behind his back? In a letter dated March 1921, Ungern is quoted as saying, The rot has taken hold of European learning. The people of Europe have been driven mad by socialist ideas. As such, to think right now of restoring the rightful emperor of Europe is impossible. End quote. From the very beginning, Ungern had intended on the restoration of the Tsardom, although not under Nicholas II, but his brother, the Grand Duke Michael. Over time, however, this objective had only since become part of a larger scheme to forge a new, absolutist monarchical Eurasian order, with the restored Romanov dynasty of Russia and the restored Qing dynasty of China as its two focal points. The restoration of the Bo Khan, too, was only a means to this end. Ultimately, Ungern envisioned him at the head of a greater Mongolian state, which encompassed all the various ethnic groups of Central Asia, but was still subject to Chinese sovereignty. While it might have been possible to get the nobility to agree to such an arrangement, the Mongolian populace no longer had any desire to return to the Chinese yoke. This did not concern the baron whatsoever, and he categorically dismissed the powerful appeal of nationalism. Only two months after claiming the restoration of the Russian monarchy was impossible, Ungern began making plans for a campaign in Siberia against the Red Army. At this time, Ungern issued his infamous Order No. 15, half military order and half political manifesto, in red in part, quote, I, Lieutenant General Baron von Ungern Sternberg, commanding the Asiatic Cavalry Division, bring the following to the notice of all Russian units ready to fight the Reds in Russia. Russia was formed gradually out of various elements, few in number, which were wielded together by unity and faith, by racial relationship, and later by similarity in government. So long as she was untouched by the principles of revolutionary thought, which are inapplicable to her, owing to her composition and character, Russia remained a powerful, indissoluble empire. The revolutionary storm in the West profoundly undermined the mechanism of state, detaching the intellectuals from the mainstream of national ideas and aspirations. Led by the intelligentsia, both political, social, and liberal bureaucratic, the people, though in the depths of their hearts they remained loyal to Tsar, faith, and fatherland, started straying from the narrow path led down by the whole development of national thought and life. Revolutionary thought flattered the vanity of the mob, but it did not teach the people the first principles of freedom or construction. The crowd is a barbarian, and acts as such on every occasion. As soon as the mob has secured freedom, it speedily turns into anarchy, in itself the height of barbarism. First in the year of 1905, and afterwards, 1917, witnessed the criminal horrible harvest of the seeds sown by the revolutionaries. Three months of revolutionary license sufficed to destroy what many centuries had achieved. 
The people feel the need of a man whose name is familiar to them, whom they can love and respect. Only one such man exists. The man who is by right lord of the Russian earth, the emperor of all the Russias, Michael Alexandrovich. In the course of the struggle against the criminals who have destroyed and profaned Russia, it must be remembered that, on account of the complete deprivation of morals and absolute licentiousness, intellectual and physical, which now prevail in Russia, it is no longer possible to retain our old standard of values. Truth and mercy are no longer admissible. Henceforth, there can only be truth and merciless hardness. The evil which has fallen upon the land, with the object of destroying the divine principle in the human soul, must be extirpated root and branch. Fury against the head of the revolution, its devoted followers, must know no boundaries. End quote. Trying to make sense of this statement, one can tell just how oblivious Ungern was of the actual political situation. Grand Duke Michael Alexandrovich, whose candidacy for the throne Ungern supported, had been executed by the Bolsheviks three whole years prior. Ungern was correct insofar as that Russia was all but lost to the Bolsheviks. Ungern's old commander, White Army General Pyotr Vrangel, had been forced to evacuate the remainder of his forces from the country in November of the previous year. In the West, the fledgling Polish state was putting up resistance to the Soviets, but everywhere else, the Reds were victorious. They were beginning to consolidate their power, and to export the revolution to territories previously on the periphery of the old Russian Empire. The aforementioned Polish-Soviet War was an example of one such attempt, but the Soviets also had their eyes on Mongolia. In 1919, two political parties emerged in opposition to the Chinese occupation, they had no definitive ideology, but they were both vaguely left-wing and presented a vision of Mongolia's future opposed to the theocratic rule of the Bogd Khan. In 1920, these two parties merged to form the Mongolian People's Party. They adopted Leninism as their official ideology and sent a request to their Russian counterparts for aid. Eager as they may have been to support the revolution, Bolshevik leadership was hesitant to intervene in Mongolia for fear of antagonizing China. But with Ungern's arrival on the scene, the Bolsheviks began to fear the prospect of Mongolia being used as a base for the Whites to stage an invasion. The situation in Mongolia was so troubling that even the government in Beijing suggested that it would be open to cooperating with the Bolsheviks to expel Ungern from the country. As early as 1919, preparations were being made to invade Mongolia and to destroy Ungern's rogue army. These plans were derailed somewhat in early 1921 when the Red Army's resources had to be diverted to the war against Poland, but the Mongolian People's Party was determined to proceed with their plan. The party leadership returned to Mongolia shortly following the Battle of Urga, and organized the first division of the new Mongolian People's Army. It was small, very small, consisting of just 20 horsemen under the leadership of cavalry commander Damdin Sukhbatar, future founding father of the Mongolian Republic. Over the next month, Sukhbatar's partisans fought skirmishes across the country and gained new recruits. By the 18th of March, they were powerful enough to take the town of Kyatka on the Russian border. From there, the Mongolian People's Party established its base and issued proclamations to all Mongol people to expel the Russian invaders. Meanwhile, as Ungern continued to make preparations for his new campaign, his regime began to look a lot more like the loathed Zhu Zhuzhangs. To conscript more men for his army, he had the Bogd Khan reintroduce the old banner system, which, on paper, gave him at least 4,000 more soldiers. To supply them, Ungern instituted a series of policies to reorganize the Mongol economy into a war economy. 
These unpopular policies, combined with the presence of a rival government-slash-native insurgent army in the north, caused many Mongolians to abandon their support for Ungern, who, it must be remembered, never particularly cared about Mongolian independence in the first place. Many joined the rebels, who promised not only independence but democracy and economic justice. Ungern was even beginning to alienate the Russians under his ranks, especially the deserters from Kolchak's army, who had only joined him recently. More and more, people began to see Ungern as delusional, tyrannical, and bloodthirsty. Many accounts from those who accompanied him on what would be his last campaign claim, with the benefit of retrospect, to have known that their effort was doomed from the beginning, and that they only went along for fear of being executed for desertion. Well, I think I'll leave it here for now, with Ungern preparing to strike out against the communists, and the communists preparing to strike out against Ungern. The resulting clash would be a battle of epic proportion, a final confrontation between the forces of revolution and reaction for the fate of the Mongolian nation. Who would emerge victorious? I get the feeling you already know, but you'll have to tune in next time to get all the sordid details, as the god of war is finally laid to rest. Until then, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.